0: What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord.
1: Thank you, Anna, for reading today's passage. Have you ever had a hard time getting your point across? Perhaps you are a parent and you find yourself repeating the same message over and over again to your children. Maybe you supervise other employees and you find yourself repeating the same instructions. Maybe you're a school teacher and you patiently teach the same lesson over and over again. Or perhaps you are married and you find your spouse is slow to understand you. If I ask my wife something and she answers, How long have we been married, Ray? I know it's not a good sign. Usually I find myself sitting there in silence and asking myself, What is so obvious that I have not understood? Obviously, my wife thinks something is already very clear. Today's passage almost seems to be a repeat of Romans 6, 1-14. Paul obviously wants his first readers and us to get his point. Having said this, Paul does come with a new focus. In verses 1-14, through 14, Paul focuses on what we have been freed from, the power of sin. In verses 15 to 23, he focuses on what we have been freed to, to devote ourselves to God and experience life. Christ followers have been transferred from one way of life to another. We're now one with Jesus. The problem is we often find ourselves in a battle. Sin desires to entice us, to entangle us, to keep us from life. So how do we stay on the path of life? As we read through verses 15 to 23, it feels as if Paul is going back and forth in his argument. Looking at the literary structure will help us picture what he is doing. He employs a chiasmus. The question in verse 15 is answered in verse 23. In verses 16 and 22, he talks about the outcome of being bound to God. In verses 17, 18, and twenty twenty one 21, he contrasts freedom from sin and freedom from Righteousness. At the center of the chiasmus is verse 19. It communicates Paul's main point. Romans 6, verse 19. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to moral lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. We've been freed from the penalty and power of sin. But we must not allow sin to overcome us. We are not completely free of sin's presence. Our flesh is weak. As Pastor Willie said last week, the flesh is all the old destructive habits and thought patterns which remained ingrained in your flesh. Your flesh automatically reverts to the conditioned patterns of action and response in your subconscious. So we're in a spiritual battle. Before Jesus captivated our hearts, We thoughtlessly gave ourselves to impurity and lawlessness. We were impure within, in our thoughts and attitudes. We were lawless without, in our words and actions. In fact, our impurity and lawlessness led to ever-increasing wickedness. When we went down this path of impure thinking and lawless behavior, we became embroiled in a cycle of sin. Our mental and emotional health were sabotaged. Our lives became characterized by ever-increasing rebellion against God, self-centeredness, and the harming of others. We found ourselves bound to sin. We live in a world not only bound to sin, but also comfortable with sin. It is comfortable with self-love, striving for status, status, sex for the sake of sex, the love of money and pleasure, and the list goes on. The question for us as followers of Jesus is, Are we still enticed by these things? Our society is even comfortable with taking the lives of the unborn and the elderly. Do we find ourselves becoming more and more comfortable with these things? Paul talks about giving ourselves to righteousness. Righteousness here, it's synonymous with God. Giving ourselves to God leads to sanctification, he says. Sanctification is the process of becoming more and more like Jesus. That is, Living a life marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Who would not want that? Living a sanctified life means living wholly devoted to our new master, God, and being fully engaged in this process of becoming more and more like Jesus. Paul says, choose the path of becoming like Jesus. You see, we're not static beings. We're going in one direction toward ever-increasing wickedness, or in the other direction toward becoming more and more like Jesus. We do not live in a neutral state, and our decisions along the way are really important. This is what Paul wants us to understand. Are you facing a a fork-in-the-road decision moment, A, a choice between two paths, Paul is saying, people, you want to be on the path of righteousness. You really want to be on the path of sanctification. Why would we want to be on this path? What would motivate us to be on this path? Well, let's take a closer look at his argument. The question in verse 1 was, are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? Paul gives an emphatic, not in your life answer. If we're united with Jesus... We've died to our sinful nature and have been freed from the power of sin. We are now alive to God. Now in verse 15, this conclusion is explored further. Verse 15 of Romans 6. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. The question is, if we, are, if we no longer work for our salvation, are we therefore under no obligation to live a holy life? In other words, Are we free to live life as we choose? Can we become as comfortable with sin as our society is? Paul emphatically rejects the idea. God forbid. Yes, with Jesus it's a new day. Christ followers do not live under the demands of the Mosaic law, but they're also not free to pursue a life of sin. Why not? Verse 23 provides a crystal clear answer. For the wages of sin is death, But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is a verse to memorize. The word wages implies that the punishment for sin is what one has earned and what one deserves. Death is a merited wage. Those enslaved to sin are spiritually dead, will die physically, and will experience final condemnation and eternal death, always. We can be sure that sin is a master that will always pay on time and in full. The free gift of God, on the other hand, is the opposite of what we deserve. Through God's unmerited favor, we have been saved. It's not the outcome of our righteous works. No, by grace we have been justified, made right with God, and adopted into God's family. We've been freed from the penalty of sin. We have a new identity, and we have a new destiny. We're being saved, that is, We're being transformed into the likeness of Jesus. The fruit of the free gift of God is our sanctification. And we will be saved. We will be completely sanctified. We'll be glorified. The final outcome is life eternal with God for all who are united with Jesus. We can be sure that under God's favor, life in its fullness is always found. So Paul urges us to choose the path of grace. If we practice righteousness, it is evidence of God's grace in our lives. If we live bound to sin and have no desire to be like Jesus, can we say with confidence that we've become his followers? The metaphor of slavery dominates verses 15 to 23. Eight times words related to slavery are used. Romans six sixteen. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death, or of obedience which leads to righteousness? Paul says we're always enslaved to something. This verse reminds me of Bob Dylan's song, "Got to Serve Somebody." You may be a construction worker working on a home. You may be living in a mansion or you might live in a dome. You might own guns and you might even own tanks. You might be somebody's landlord. You might even own banks. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Serve somebody. Yes, you're going to have to serve somebody. Serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Serve somebody. You may be a preacher with your spiritual pride. You may be a city councilman taking bribes on the side. You may be working in a barber shop. You may know how to cut hair. You may be somebody's mistress, maybe somebody's heir. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, you're going to have to serve somebody. Serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody serve somebody. We don't have a choice in relation to this. We all submit to a master. We are enslaved to the master we choose to obey. Slavery inevitably entails absolute obedience. Obedience to sin leads to death. Obedience to God leads to righteousness. You serve one or the other. No middle ground is possible. The question is, to whom or to what do we want to be enslaved? We are bound to that which we have offered ourselves. If we seek power or acceptance or status, we're controlled by power, acceptance, and status. Whether we call ourselves religious or not, we all have a God. We are all worshipers. We don't control ourselves. We're controlled by that which we worship. When we surrender our lives to Jesus, we choose to worship God. It's a personal choice. Philosophers call it positive freedom, the freedom to pursue a good outcome. This is the kind of freedom Paul is encouraging. It's a freedom that fills life with purpose and meaning. It gives us a reason to live, grounded in who God is and who he wants us to be. Now, our North American society encourages a different kind of freedom. It encourages what philosophers call negative freedom, freedom from all constraints. In our world, if something is sacred, it is the freedom to choose whatever we want. And where absolute negative freedom reigns, the only sin which is not tolerated is intolerance. This freedom from all constraints promotes a value-free world. Supposedly, the fewer limits I have on my desires, choices, and actions, the freer I am. Everyone is free to do what is right in their own eyes as long as it does not harm someone else. There's only one problem. It's based on a lie. Just think about it for a second. How do we even define harm if we don't have deep beliefs about right and wrong? Any understanding of what is harmful is based on an understanding of right and wrong. In other words, absolute freedom is an illusion. It's truly a fantasy. Freedom from all constraints erodes community. It, It fragments the family. Ultimately, it destroys the individuals who are enslaved to themselves We humans were created to live in community with a sense of individual responsibility, respect for restrictions, the honoring of authority, and an agreement around a a guiding worldview with God at the center. The sin of Adam and Eve was to say to God, we can be our own gods. We can determine what is right and wrong on our own. Giving into this sin results in people becoming increasingly enslaved to themselves, their self-centeredness. This path is birthed through spiritual death, separation from God. It leads to physical death and ends in eternal death. Eternal separation from God is the final outcome. It's the worst form of slavery. So choose to live bound to God. If we truly want to live, the only alternative is to live bound to God. When we live bound to God, we take freedom losses in order to gain the most desired freedom. For example, if we want the freedom granted by being a great musician, we will have to give up some freedoms and practice eight hours a day. If we want the freedom of a great athlete, we will have to give up some freedoms and submit ourselves to a rigorous regimen of training. Do we want the freedom to love God and others? If we live in the world of no constraints, love cannot grow or even survive. If we live self-absorbed and self-centered, thinking only about our identity, our needs, our desires, love dies. Love relationships only work where freedoms are sacrificed to serve the other. God showed us how to do this, Romans 5 verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God freely demonstrated his love by sending his son as a sacrifice for our salvation. If we give ourselves to God's love, we will truly become the people we were we were created to be. We'll become freer than we could ever imagine. We'll be set free from guilt and shame and fears and insecurities. We'll be set free to love, to forgive, to serve, to do his will. That's what it means to be under his grace. That's what it means to live but, we may ask, is it even possible to live this life of love? We know we're enslaved to the things we love. Tim Keller writes, What makes people into what they are is the order of their loves, what they love most, more, less, and least. That is more fundamental to who you are than even the beliefs to which you mentally subscribe. Whatever we most value and cherish in our hearts invariably controls our life direction and values. If we're enslaved to the approval of others, we will live with self-pity and envy and hurt feelings and inadequacy. If we're enslaved to success, we will experience inner striving, always seeking to grasp something that cannot deliver. Fatigue and fear will mark our lives. Anything we love other than God delivers less than nothing. Love of self, success, status, recognition, sex, pleasure, money, or whatever it is will always lead to death. The fruit of these loves will always be pride and anxiety and striving and fear, guilt, shame, lots of ugly things, always. These loves always drive us down the highway to death, now and forever. We know this, but we're weak. Are we left alone in this struggle? What does God do for us? Listen to Romans 6, 17 and 18. But thanks be to God, that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. God changes our hearts. He changes us at our center. He changes what we love most and, and we begin to follow a new pattern of life from our new hearts. If we're true Christ followers, we recognize our past life for what it was. We never want to live as slaves to sin again. God has set our hearts free. Being under grace does not merely involve the forgiveness of our sin. No, being under grace includes the breaking of the mastery and dominion of sin in our lives. Being under grace, we have a new power and a new motivation. This gift from God was prophesied in Ezekiel chapter 36. And I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. So God has begun a new work in us. What does this mean for us? Here's a summary. We have been justified, made in the right with God by grace through faith in Jesus. We've been transferred from the realm of darkness into the realm of light. We've been transferred from the old realm, the old master, sin, into the realm of the new master, God. The good news is not only that we have been set free from the power of sin by the supernatural work of God, but that we have now received power from God to be sanctified, that is, to live righteously. We've become a new creation. We have new hearts. Being united with Jesus Sin can no longer force us to do anything. We're now empowered and sanctified by the Spirit. We're being transformed into the likeness of Jesus. And we live with the sure hope that at His return, we will be made completely righteous and freed from the presence of sin. We've been transferred to a new pattern of teaching that molds, shapes, and transforms us. The gospel of God. And we obey it from the heart because we've come under a new master. We want to do what pleases Him. God has planted new desires in our hearts. We now have this God-given desire to be more and more like Jesus. All this is the gift of God. So choose to follow your new heart. What does this mean for us practically? When we were slaves to sin under the power of sin, and we suffered from addictions to alcohol, pornography, gambling, and work, just to name a few examples, we wished to be free. But the desire for the things we were addicted to was ultimately greater than the desire to be freed from them. We could not say no to these things. They owned us. Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, verse 20, "'For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness.'" But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. When we were rejecting God because we wanted to be free, we were free only in the narrowest of senses. That is, we were free from living the way that would most fulfill and satisfy us. In In every other way, we were slaves on the way to death. Paul adds in verse 22, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Christ followers have been set free from the power of sin in order that they might have the power to keep the law of love. We love God and his righteousness. We love others. The path, it's life-giving, it's satisfying. Again, how does this work itself out practically? If someone says something that makes me look bad, I can respond as a slave to sin or a slave to God. If my reputation is my master, I can let my heart say, this is all wrong, I look foolish, I must discredit this person quickly, I must pay them back. At that point, if I act out this kind of reasoning, I'll become bitter. I will be harsh and vindictive. Or I can respond as a slave to God. Then being like Jesus is my ruling motivation. I can then have my heart say, well, this person has certainly pointed out a weakness. Good thing he doesn't know all of my weaknesses. And thankfully, God is my judge. He has accepted me as I am. If I respond with this kind of thinking, I'll humble myself before God, repent for my sins, rest in his forgiveness and acceptance, and probably respond with a soft answer. By God's grace, My love for God will lead me to respond in love. God in his infinite grace has drawn us to himself. He has made us spiritually alive. He has broken the shackles of sin in our lives so that we can gladheartedly desire to be like Jesus. God has freed us to think and choose and feel differently. So let's walk bound to God, follow our new heart and become like Jesus. That's the path of life. Here's some questions for your reflection before we celebrate communion together. So as we come to the Lord's table today, let's just remember what Jesus has accomplished for us. By God's grace, we've been freed from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and we will be freed from the presence of sin. Now, as we come to the Lord's table and we we remember Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf, it's, it's an important moment to just stop and reflect Sometimes we need to confess something to God, sometimes we need to make something right with someone, you know, in our lives, a family member or a coworker. Let's just take a, t- a moment to be quiet and then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together. The um, Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The body of Christ broken for us. Jesus We thank you again for being obedient to your Father, for going to the cross and dying in our place. You took our sin upon yourself so that we might be one with you and one with one another. We thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. The body of Christ, let's partake together. Paul continues, In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The blood of Christ shed for us. Jesus, we thank you again for your blood shed for us for the forgiveness of our sin. And we thank you that we have not only been forgiven of our sin, but we've been set free from the power of sin, and that you have sent your Spirit to abide in us so that we might follow you and become like you. And so, Jesus, we thank you for the free gift of salvation, which is so rich so far beyond anything that we can truly comprehend. But Lord, in, as we humble ourselves before you, may you accept our gratitude. In your name we pray, Jesus. The blood of Christ shed for us. And then Paul writes, for as often you, as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so our Lord Jesus will return. And when we he returns, we will see him face to face. We'll see him, we'll be freed from the presence of sin. We will be completely transformed into his image and live with him forever. Can't wait for that day a blessing from the book of Hebrews. May the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in you that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you.